Wow, <laughs> it's already been a good morning of worship, hasn't it? Gosh, praise the Lord. Thank you uh, to our worship arts. Gosh, if that was some kind of warm-up for tonight, I'm not sure I can handle tonight. It may just fall apart. It's going to be an exciting evening. I sure hope you will, will be back for that. Hey, I think there's several things we, gotta, we need to pray about. Obviously, with the hurricane, we have a team in Zimbabwe. So why don't we just take a moment and go before the Lord in prayer. And as we bow our heads, uh, obviously, as I pray out loud, you, you just talk to the Lord with wherever you are and whatever's on your heart and mind right now. Oh, Father, we want to we worship you and praise you. Boy, sometimes, Lord, we're saying that because we really see it and feel it. And, and, Lord, sometimes we're praising you and it's just by faith. But we acknowledge in this moment your goodness and your greatness in our lives. Father, I... Realized this week, as I was so grateful that the, the storm was di- diverted away, at least from Virginia, that my praise, my gratitude was somebody else's desperate cry. And uh, Lord, we do lift up to you our, our neighbors in North and South Carolina. And Lord, we're, we're very grateful that it, it was not as bad as it was uh, believed it could be. Um, but Lord, I know for some, some areas, some individuals, it, it is as bad as it could be. And uh, I just pray your provision in your lives, your protection over their lives. Father, I want to pray for the church. I, I, I pray for uh, our sister churches in North Carolina and South Carolina that, that this will be a great opportunity for them to love and to serve and to minister and, and care for. And we pray you're going to bless their work and their witness as it's going out. And we know that it is. I, I lift up to you the teams already leaving from Virginia with disaster relief and pray you're going to do a great work through them and that, that Lord in a very practical physical way the church can be the touch of Jesus Christ and the compassion of Jesus Christ during this time. Lord I want to lift up to you our team in Zimbabwe we thank you as, as that trip's almost coming to a conclusion we're grateful for the work they've been able to do and uh, how well it's gone and we pray they've already had a great day of, of worship there at Bulawayo Baptist and Lord, a good afternoon of rest, and we just pray you're going to bless their last few days of ministry and sharing the gospel and uh, helping those in need, and and that, Lord, our church being there uh, furthers your kingdom, it it ministers to those in need, and it encourages the church there. Uh, Father, I want to just come before you right now and lift up everybody that is in here, and God, just minister to every single one of us, whatever that might mean in our lives. I provide guidance, provide healing. God, bring hope, bring help. Lord, encourage faith. I pray this day, this week, they'll have opportunity to really see you, how good you are, how great you are. And that, Lord, it'll encourage that faith and obedience in us. Lord, I want to I lift up this new series that we're starting today on, on the Bible. And I pray you're going to bless it in each of our lives individually and as a church And that we're going to understand with more confidence, with more faith than ever before, why we believe what we believe and then effectively believe, effectively obey. And so, God, we're we're praying that uh, you're going to raise up in our hearts a great devotion to your voice and what it means in our lives. We lift this all up in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Amen. Hey, uh, a couple of months ago, I was on a website called 538. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's kind of a cultural news uh, website. And, and so I was on this, and th- there was an article that, that grabbed my attention. And uh, a guy by the name of Daniel Cox was warning uh, white evangelicals. Now, as you read the article, it's not really qu- clear why he distinguishes white evangelicals versus all races of evangelicals. I, I, I don't know why he used the word white, but, but he did. And he, he warns white evangelicals that we are sacrificing our future for our past. And look at the way he, he, he says this. He says, white evangelicals are losing young America because we hold on to the past. A moral nostalgia. I don't think I've ever heard that phrase. I find that an interesting, kind of an intriguing phrase. A moral nostalgia. Is that, is that what I have? A moral nostalgia. And in so doing, we are drifting further away from culture and mainstream. Now, I might... I might disagree who's drifting, <laughs> if he understands what the word drifting means. But he goes on uh, from that statement to begin to talk about different issues. And, and my guess is there's more issues than what he addresses in the, in, in the article that we're drifting from. But the ones he brings up are sex outside of marriage, living together, abortion, children out of wedlock, just about any definition of, of sexuality, same-sex marriage, uh, abortion. He, he it lists all of these things, and, and this is pretty much the way he says it. He says, those aren't issues in America anymore. We're not talking about that. And then he says this, and you need, white evangelicals, you need to get over it if you want to survive. Now hold on to that word survive because then he goes on to give some statistics that completely contradict everything he's just said. Because he says this, when you study churches today in America, the churches that are, are out of step with culture, that, that are holding to scripture, the, those churches for the most part are healthy, they're growing, they're, they're at least maintaining. But the churches that have embraced cultural thought are in steep decline. What? Wait, so you're telling me that if I want to survive, I need to embrace cultural thought so that I can join the other churches in steep decline. I don't, I don't think he knows what the word drift means. I don't think he knows what survive means. Uh, he kind of contradicts himself on, on all of that. But you know, as, as he writes that, I do recognize the reality of what he's talking about. You know, and it, it should lead us to ask, where does right and wrong come from? Where do our views come from? And is that all they are, just, just views? Is that all we really have is a, a moral nostalgia? You know, we're just a, a group of people. We long for the, the, the good old days and the rules that governed those days. Is that all we're, we're really wanting? You know, I, I was reminded as, as I was thinking about how to respond to someone like this, I was, I was reminded of a story in the, in the New Testament. It's right there at the beginning of the church, the birth of the church, the, the gospels being preached, the church is flourishing, miracles are being done, and then the mainstream shows up. 
Then culture arrives and uh, not happy about any of this. And so they arrest the disciples. And about as soon as they locked them away, then they thought, you know, we really don't have a reason to arrest them. And so they turn right around again and let them go. But they let them go with this warning. And I just, I tell that whole story to say, you know, I feel like what the disciples say to the mainstream then is what we would say to the mainstream, what we would say to a Daniel Cox today. Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you instead of God, you do the math. <laughs> you, you figure that out. If, if we believe we're listening to God, then I don't really have a choice, do I? You see, folks, I, I don't, and, and I, I understand what meanings of words are and vocabulary. Thing. I actually don't look at my views as my views. It's not my views and my beliefs versus your views and your beliefs. I don't believe I hold to a moral nostalgia, but rather I try to hold to the word of God. I have directives and commands from him that I am to follow. And I'm not really given a choice there of what my view is. I'm not even sure God is all that interested in what my view is. I'm pretty sure he tells me what's best for me is is his view. But the reality is... The, the more you and I seek to understand this book and follow this book, uh, we are going to be outcast. I mean, that's been true throughout history, around the world, but in America specifically, more and more that we try to follow. I do believe what the article is saying is right. We are going to be more and more outcast. And I, I'll tell you what, I struggle with that. You know, some of us are fighters. You know, we're protesters, we're, we're marching... With signs, we like to be out there on the front lines getting in somebody's face. I'll be honest with you, that's, that's not really my personality. I, be honest with you, I'd prefer to go along and get along. I, I, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I don't, not interested in protesting and fighting that way. Listen, when I'm out there at, at school or I'm at work and, uh, yeah, my, my work environment's probably a little different from yours. But generally speaking, when I'm in any group of people, I don't want to be thought as contrary. I don't want to be thought of as unintelligent. I don't want to be thought of as unloving, not compassionate. I I don't want to be appearing like I want to be some kind of outcast. I I don't want to do that. So, So if following God, because I don't think I'm supposed to be guided by my personality... I don't think I'm supposed to be guided by what makes me most comfortable. If following God is going to put me on the outside, I mean, I don't know about you, but I want to be sure what I'm following, right? I want to be sure of what this says. And so this fall, that's kind of my goal, is because this is going to become more and more a reality for us, is that we gain a greater confidence, a greater understanding in what we have in this book. This series is not as much going to be about what this individual verse says, although today we'll do a little bit of that. But it's really going to be looking at the book as a whole and understanding what is it that we hold here. Is this just a collection of views from another culture? Why why do we let our lives today be shaped by a group of people that lived two or three thousand years ago on the other side of the earth? I mean, if you stop and think about it, that, that doesn't make any sense. So, so if, if that's all this is, 
Why do we do that? What is it that we hold here? What, what do we have? We're going to look at that. We're going we're to look at the different translations and, and understand all of that and, and understand really the authority that is in this book. You know, there, there was a day, some of us are old enough to remember this, when somebody, somebody like me could say, the Bible says, boy, that carried a lot of weight, didn't it? When the Bible says, that day's passed. Right? And I'm not talking about culture. Of course it's passed in the culture. My fear and concern is that the Bible says carrying authority has passed in the church. It's passed all, all throughout the church. Folks, do, do you realize in, in all the gatherings this morning happening all, all across America, way more than half of the people who've gathered have no authority in this book? They, they do see it as just a collection of views and we kind of pick and choose what views work for us and, and kind of leave out the rest. As a matter of fact, the fact that we do that in the church makes it a little bit difficult when you and I go out into the world and we try to say, well, the Bible says, and say, oh, you don't know what it says. I know another church. I know another believer. They, they don't believe. You know, folks, the truth of the matter is there's not all kinds of interpretations to Scripture. I'm going to go with the great theologian, Mark Twain. He said, you know, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. Folks, churches are not split up because there's all kinds of different ways to take the Bible. There are minor differences between Baptists and Presbyterians and Catholics. There are these differences, and in most, in most cases, it's pretty minor but when we have major differences, it's not because they're looking at this verse and we're looking at this one. We interpret this word this way, they interpret it. The major difference is they reject the Bible. That, that is the major difference. Why do they hold the view and we They reject the scripture. So really, so entirely central to the Christian faith is the Bible. It, it tells me. Who, who God is, what he's like. It, it, it tells me where we came from and where we're going. It tells me what is right and what is wrong. And the word the Bible says is to have an authority in our lives. I, I'm not trying to live by my views. I'm not trying to, you know, share my feelings and my beliefs. I'm trying to live and share what God says. And as that makes us opposed to others... Man, yeah, we do. We need more confidence. And so what I want to show today and the weeks to come is that you and I can be entirely filled with confidence and faith that what we have here is the Word of God. Today we're going to look at that by saying that the Bible is inspired. Next Sunday we're going to look at the Bible is inerrant and incomparable. And then the two Sundays following that, we're going to we're just going to look at this book at a whole and try to have a real practical understanding of what's inside here and how do we approach it? How do we understand it? We're going to look at, as I said a moment ago, all those translations. Why do we have a King James, an English standard, a new American, a new international, a revised standard, a new living? Do, do all these translations mean that we really don't know? 
Or are they just making a bunch of to-do about nothing that there's all these translations? We're going to, under, we're going to understand what all was involved with that. And, and what I hope we come out with on the other end is a real confidence. Wow, it's not really my view versus your view, my belief versus your belief. It's my attempt by the grace of God to walk according to his word. So today, the Bible is inspired. What do we mean by that when we say it's, it's inspired? You know, we, we talk about things inspiring us. A song inspires us. Sometimes we'll say a certain person is inspiring to us. A poem. Tonight, at 7.15, I promise you, you'll be walking out those doors saying, that's one of the most inspiring moments I've ever been in. That's a money-back guarantee. I'll be out there. I'll be giving back money if you weren't inspired. But now you stop, stop and think about that. If you weren't, I mean, the word inspired is kind of subjective, right? I mean, obviously, I can find something very inspiring and it do nothing for you at all. And, and vice versa. I mean, something might really move you and I'm like, <sighs> nothing. Yeah, so it's inspiring in that sense that we so often use it, kind of in a, in a subjective feeling. Not what we're talking about when we say the Bible is inspired. We're not talking about how it moves us or encourages us, challenges us. We're, we're, we're talking about something really entirely different from that understanding. Well, let's let the scripture, let's let the scripture kind of tell us what inspired means. We're going to look at three verses today and uh, kind of grab a, a definition from that. The first one, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture, boy, that word all is important, isn't it? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It just listed four things that all scripture profits into our lives. And that profit will result in you and me being complete. As we take this journey with the Lord, when we get to the end, we will be complete. We'll be like God, ready to step into where he Lives. And so that's what the scripture profits in our lives. Now it says three things here, makes three claims. Number one, all scripture, that's the entire Bible, is inspired from Genesis to Revelation, from history to prophecy, from science to morality. All of it is inspired by God. Now I don't want to jump into next week and start talking about inerrancy, but when we say even science, I mean, that's the point. I mean, hasn't science proved the Bible wrong? No, the, the science hasn't proved anything wrong about the Bible. As a matter of fact, over and over, lie, or, uh, science and history and archaeology catch up to where the Bible is. Now, I, I get it. Having a different view or disagreeing does not prove something wrong. Obviously, science has a different view on the beginning of all things, right? It has a different view on how everything got here and, and how life got here. But that different view has not been proved. I seem to be the only one still saying this. That's a theory. It is a theory. It has not been proved. Now, they're telling a lie that it's been proved, that it is a fact. But it is a theory. And I, hey, I respect, they have a different theory of how we got here. Technically speaking, by the vocabulary, we're offering up another theory that we get from Scripture. That things didn't just happen, but an intelligent designer put it here. But their theory, understand this folks, because you're not unintelligent, their theory is based on presuppositions. You know what presuppositions are? That's a fancy scientific word that means faith. 
They weren't there and they can't prove it. It is their faith that there is no intelligent designer. It is their faith that nothing can produce something. And upon their presuppositions, they build a model. Fine, that doesn't prove the Bible wrong. It's just a different way. Archaeology, gosh, man, when we came into the 1900s, I mean, there's a lot of historians saying, hey, you know, when you look at the Bible, uh, there's things in here that, that aren't real. Like, there are cities, there's kings. Nowhere else are those found in history. And it's like, because clearly the Bible can't be a historical valuable document. And so if it's not proved somewhere else, it can't be true. And so there's no king, there's no city here. And then we come into the 1900s and Indiana Jones and, and we just vaulted archaeology. I mean, really the 1900s, archaeology greatly involved, really got good. And guess what? One dig, one find after another kept proving over and over and over every single historical statement inside the scripture. It's never been proved wrong. Life History, science has had to catch up to it every now and then. So all of scripture uh, is inspired. Now, another way of looking at this, number two, and this might look like I'm saying the same thing twice. The entire Bible is God breathed. And the reason that might look like the same thing is because the translation of the word God breathed is inspired. So it might look like saying the same thing. But really in number two, what I'm trying to say is how this book got to us. How how we came to have it, okay? And so it was breathed out by God. The word, what is being said here, the word originated in God's mouth. What, What you read there originated in God's mouth. It came out through his voice and then it went through men. It went through the pens of a, of a Moses, of a James, of a Peter, of a Paul, but it originated, it began with God's voice. And that's the same voice that gave us creation. It is by his breath that you breathe. So it's a pretty powerful breath. It's a pretty powerful voice. And then the third thing this state, this verse says is that the entire Bible is profitable. It profits our lives, every single thing in there. Not everything in there feels good, does it? Doesn't always feel good to read it. It can even make us an outcast in society, but everything in there is profitable. And it gives those four words. Let me explain those four words in a different way. The, the Bible lays out for us the road of life. And it, and it tells me how to go down that road in a safe and a good and a prosperous way that will land me in the destination that I want to be for all eternity. Now, what do you have on a road? You have road signs, yield, stop, how fast. i tell you something really important on a road is those things, what are they called? Lines, lines. Boy, texting has really made lines irrelevant, hasn't it? And you can always tell when somebody's texting because it's like the lines aren't there. I mean, one line says, hey, if you go over this line, sooner or later, you're in a ditch. Your life is placed in a ditch. Hey, you cross this line, guess what happens? You're now in head-on traffic and you're going to collide with somebody else. Folks, isn't that what a lot of scripture is giving us? Hey, there's lines. I know, you know, I want to be free from lines. Well, yeah, that freedom puts you in a ditch. That freedom puts you in a head-on collision with somebody else. And so a lot of what the scripture is, it's the signs on the road. It's the lines on the road so that I can safely and prosperously arrive at a destination that is right and good. And all of the scripture is prosperous for us, 
profitable for us in that way. Even, are you ready for this? Leviticus. Boy, isn't Leviticus like the most picked on book of the whole Bible? And for good reason. My gosh, it's boring. Holy cow, God, what are you thinking there? I mean, you can't even get seven chapters. By the time you're at chapter seven, if you're still in it, you're lost. We'll never find you again. They started reading of Leviticus last Wednesday. We never saw them again. You know, what do you have in the first seven chapters? You've got very detailed explanation of how to perform these different offerings and sacrifices, none of which we're going to perform because we live under one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So, I mean, it would be easy today for, for a New Testament Christian to look at the first seven chapters of Leviticus and say, well, that's not for me. I don't need that. That's, dare I say, irrelevant. I mean, I can understand why somebody could say that. And they would be entirely wrong. Folks, Leviticus, and it takes some work. (laughs) Leviticus is so relevant. How about this? You ever wondered or had somebody ask you, why does somebody have to die for me? What difference does it make that someone died for me? Do you know where the groundwork for that answer was laid? Leviticus. Leviticus is why Jesus died on a cross. Have you ever noticed in our religion, there's a lot of blood. Do you notice we, I mean, you realize folks, you've gathered together in a building and you have sang songs about blood. That makes you kind of weird. I mean, someday, if you know nothing of the Christian faith, you wander in the, these people are singing about blood. Why don't we leave? Yeah. Why, why is there so much focus, even a joyous focus, on blood? Leviticus answers that question. Leviticus lays the entire groundwork for that answer. I'll tell you something else that made me fall in love uh, with Leviticus. I was, I was in seminary doing a, a detailed study of Leviticus. And the reason I say I was in seminary, because where else are you going to do a detailed study of Leviticus? Unless somebody's making you do it, right? And so I, I, I'm going through this. And, and seriously, you know, if you're, if you're thinking person, you're saying, Lord, this is just a lot. This is just a lot of detail on, on, on nothing. And then it dawned on me. Just a little observation here. All these details. Holiness is detailed. Do you understand how important it is to understand? Holiness touches every detail of life. And when it touches every detail of life, it touches it in a very detailed way. And you realize, I will never be able to accomplish holiness. See, it's without the message of Leviticus, you will never cry out for a Savior. Because generally, we think we're pretty good. And, and matter of fact, we will attach words to holiness that are entirely inappropriate based on Leviticus. We'll say things like kind of. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of holy-ish. I'm, I'm mo- mostly, right? I'm mostly. You read Leviticus, there's no way to attach words like mostly and kind of to holy. It touches 100% of everything. It's, it's the message Leviticus where, where I get that. So all, of, I mean, if we can prove Leviticus is profitable, then the rest of the Bible is pretty easy, right? It is all profitable for our lives. Second verse, 1 Peter 1, 20 to 21. I hope this is, let's, let's go back to it. I, I'm, I'm going as fast as I can, but that was a little quick. 
Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Not one thing in here actually did come from Moses or Paul or Peter or James. No, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, what, what this is again, we, remember we looked at, we said a moment ago that, that it originated in the mouth of God. This verse, as much as any single verse, really is trying to explain to you and me how the word, how the sentence, how the paragraph originated in God's mouth but came through Moses' pen and landed in a book that you're holding today. And it's that phrase, carried along by the Holy Spirit. That same phrase is used in Acts 27, and where we see it used really becomes analogous to what we have here. If you went to Acts 27, you would find that Paul has been arrested, and he is being moved from one location to another on a ship. And as he's on that ship out on the sea, a tremendous storm, a hurricane-like storm, hits the ship. Now, what do you think the sailors are doing in the midst of that storm? Sleeping? No, no. They're doing everything sailors are trained to do. They're trying to, and it, and it says, I mean, they're trying to hold the ship together. They're giving directions on how the ship is going to get safely to where we want. They're holding on for dear life. They're trying to steer this thing. But where the ship landed ultimately was carried by the storm. Now, you just take out the word ship and put in Scripture. You know what, folks? When we say the Bible's inspired, we're not saying that Moses, Peter, Paul, Isaiah, Matthew, that they were taking mindless dictation. That God was just speaking to them. They're just, Could you repeat that again? They weren't taking dictation. As a matter of fact, when you, when you read the Scripture, it's very clear their personalities come through. I mean, Paul's writing sounds a certain way, and that's different from how Peter comes across. Their, their writing styles, their personalities really come through, just like those sailors. They're very engaged. They're very involved in holding the ship together. Men are involved in the writing of the Scriptures But when the ink dried and it landed in your hand and my hand, it was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men were a means, but it originated, it began with God. We have what he wanted us to have. Third verse, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 to 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, or joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Man, if I could pull all those words together and just kind of boil it down to a phrase, you know what we have here? We have a living scalpel. We have a living scalpel that we are to let into our lives to do surgery. It it cuts us open. It lays us bare to show us what we really are. And that doesn't sound like something you want, does it? Hey, I was hoping somebody would point out how bad I really am. Why why do I want that? You know, I, I like the way one person said this, said we're offended by the Bible because it shows us that God is holy and we aren't. You know what I love best about that phrase? The period. 
It makes this harsh statement. And I think really in kind of modern American Christianity, if we throw something like that out, then we want to immediately scoop in and make it not as bad as it is. Oh yeah, God's holy and we're not. But you're good and you're sure trying. And hey, nobody's perfect. You know, we want to clean it up. Folks, without harshness, without reality, we don't lay hold of a Savior. Because the reality is we think we're mostly Pretty good. You know why? Because instead of judging myself by the thoughts of God's voice, I judge myself by my own thoughts. Or I judge myself by culture's thoughts. And I say, well, I, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty, our, our, our deacon, when he prayed this morning, do you know, he he said, God, I, I pray we'd realize it's your money. See, without the scripture, I think it's mine. Hey, I'm the one that went to work. My blood, sweat, and tears that did it. I, I, it's my money and I can do with it what, and I'll tell you something, I do good things with my money. But I open God's word and I find out, oh, no, actually it's all his. Every single penny. And as the owner in a relationship with a manager, he has a right to tell me how the money is to be used. And if I don't live according to that, I bring a curse, Malachi chapter 3, into my life. Because it's not my money. So that's surgery. Ah, how about this one? It's my, it's my body. Is there a greater principle we live by in America? It's it's my body. I mean, I recognize I can't use it to hurt you. I can't use it to attack you. But, you know, as long as I'm inside a certain amount of... It's my body to do with as I will, as I want. Until I read 1 Corinthians 6 that literally says, It's not your body. God bought it. The only responsibility, the only right you have is to, what does 1 Corinthians 6 say? Glorify God in your body. What does that mean? That almost sounds kind of weird. How do I glorify God in my body? His voice will tell me. You know, I'm a, all in all, and I think y'all would, I'm a pretty kind guy, aren't I? I'd like, might be more than four of you to have agreed with me there. Good gracious. No, I mean, I am, I am a, I'm a, I mean, I told you, I'm not a protester. I'm not up in people say, I'm not wanting to defeat your values and your views. Hey, you do your thing. I do mine. That's, that's me. I'm kind. I mean, I, there's a few people I don't forgive, but they deserve it. There's a few people I get revenge on because they really, really deserve it, right? But I'm, you see, I, it's okay. I can think that and feel really comfortable until I open up the scripture. And I see what kindness really looks like. I see what goodness really looks. As a matter of fact, it is only through this book that in all my goodness and kindness, I can discover how entirely self-centered and selfish I really am. I need to let this book, I need to let it do surgery in my life. And again, I don't, don't normally want surgery. Don't want normally somebody pointing out. But it's alive. And it gives life. Folks, I'm not going to grab a hold of the life God gives until I understand the problem that resides in me. And how without this book would anybody ever know to say, Jesus is my God and Savior. There's no amount of intelligence on your part. There's no amount of spirituality on your part that would lead you to say that without this book. It's alive. 
It's alive, and because it's alive, it can move. I know it looks like an inanimate object here, but it can move. Folks, by the fact it's alive, that's why it can speak to an 8-year-old and an 88-year-old. Because it's alive, it can speak words of encouragement, words of challenge, and words of direction to somebody who actually is kind of spiritually dull. Spiritually not very mature. And at the exact same time it's doing that, it can speak words of encouragement, words of challenge, and words of direction to somebody who has spent decades loving, reading, memorizing, studying, and try to obey this book. Wherever it is on the spectrum, the spirit, the scripture is alive and can move and speak and do surgery in every single life, resulting in our profit. What is our profit? When I get to the end of the road, by the grace and miracle of God, I look just like God and I will be rewarded as if I lived that way. It is the scripture that gives me that opportunity. Is it always fun? No. <laughs> No, because it starts with me letting it tell me. See, really, folks, what, what we need to do, and, and this is what's going on in churches all across America, what's going on in individual, we're reading this book and we're deciding what we accept or don't accept. God didn't give you this and say, hey, pick out some things you like and that work for you. You understand, I'm getting ready to say a hard statement, and it's the most important thing you could ever know. God didn't give you this book for you to discover what you accept. He gave you his voice so you could know what he will never accept in you. Because he doesn't want there to be a place where he never accepts you. It's God's book. It's not my thoughts. It's not the cultural's thoughts. It's not what I think about another person and how I just want to support and encourage. It's God's voice. Let me real quickly tell you, and I'm I'm actually going to tell you the same two reasons next week. (laughs) But I want to give you two quick reasons why I believe the Bible. Number one, Jesus believed in it. Now, I don't expect that to mean a hill of beans to the world. But I would assume that a significant number of people in the room here or, or, or watching online, I would assume a significant number of us in here believe that we're Christ followers, right? I mean, do you believe that about You don't have to answer. Just inside your own, yeah, I, I'm a, I, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christ follower. Then if I'm following him, then what authority do I have to carve up what I accept and don't accept? What authority do I have to let the culture tell me what we no longer do? If I'm a, he believed this, do I have any choice but to believe it? Even if it puts me at odds with others. And the primary other is myself and my own feelings. Did you know that Jesus believed in Adam and Eve? Did you know that Jesus believed in Jonah and the great fish? And he didn't talk about them as neat stories in which we can learn something important. He talked about them as historical realities. Did you know that Jesus quoted almost all of the prophets in the Old Testament? Did you know that Jesus very specifically said in Matthew chapter 5, I didn't come to do away with one letter in this book. I came to fulfill it. He didn't want to do away with anything in here. He wanted to show you it could be lived and he would live it for you. And he rose again. 
So until Daniel Cox defeats death and rises up afterwards to tell me the greater reality and the greater truth, I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. I mean, seriously, doesn't defeating death kind of mean I'm guessing his opinion has of some more value to it? Jesus believed the book. I have to believe the book. Second reason, and I don't know why this doesn't get more play, fulfilled prophecy. Folks, this book predicts the future hundreds of times. I, mean, I said recently, 62 major prophecies just on the first coming of Jesus. And when we're talking about no, prophecies, I'm not talking about that Nostradamus garbage where about 400 different things could fulfill that, that prophecy. I'm talking about naming dates, naming cities, naming people. Did you know in one place the scripture says a king will be born and he will send the Israelites back to Israel and his name will be Cyrus. The scripture calls out the name of a pagan king before it's born. That... I'd like to know more about how that happens. I mean, even if you don't know what you believe, don't know if you buy all this, it never misses a hundred. Listen, if, if the scripture was right 80% of the time on that telling the future thing, I probably would still be up here saying the same thing. But it's not 80% of the time. It's 100% of the time. And that's not me saying I really, 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 really believe in unicorns. All of those things are historically verifiable. Fulfilled prophecy. At the very minute, you all scratch your head and say, probably should look at this a little deeper. And, and folks, I know many of us throughout this room, we do know Jesus believed it, and that does mean something to us. We do know it fulfills prophecy, and that does mean something to us. But one thing I want to be clear about. is my goal in this series is not that we win debates. And we can say, uh-uh, our book's better. That, that, that's not the goal. My, my goal actually is not that we can say, my views come from God. And by the way, just because we're Christians and just because we read the Bible doesn't mean every view we have is from God, right? We, we got we to come back to Scripture and be clear about what Scripture is teaching. But folks, the, I think the real purpose, golly, I just bent all my pages up. Oh, no. I'm going to have to iron those out this afternoon. Um, you know what the real goal is? Is that I would love it and obey it even more than I ever have before. Whether you have been walking with this word for 30, 40, 50 years, or you've been considering this word for three or four weeks. My goal is we start rounding into about halfway through October. We're overwhelmed at what we hold and we realize that whatever the cost might be out there, it's God's voice. I have no choice. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you, would you do that in each of our heart and lives? Would you give us a greater love, a greater appreciation, and out of that, a greater devotion to obey and to follow your voice? And your only purpose in speaking was our good, our eternal good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.